0: Welcome
1: to my podcast, Esteemed Women. It used to be called silence and then it became innovation. And finally now, women are much more empowered than ever to use their voices to express what it's really like to strive and thrive in what tends to be quite a male-dominated world. I'm sure it hasn't been easy, but these women have achieved and accomplished, and they truly are esteemed women who have chosen careers in science, technology, and innovation, They are typically go-getters, alpha females, hardworking and maybe just a tad perfectionistic but on the whole, they've applied their talents and skills to really make a difference. That was certainly my intention when I started working as a mechanical engineer and fluid dynamicist. In these episodes, you'll get a chance to hear about some fascinating innovations, but you're also likely to be inspired and uplifted by their personal stories and experiences. So let's hear it from my STEM sister an incredibly esteemed woman, Ashley Von Brigham, a hydrogen engineer.
0: My name is Ashley Van Brigham. Um, I'm run about halfway through a PhD at Loughborough University, most specifically in the National Centre for Combustion and Aerothermal Technology, where I'm researching hydrogen.
1: Well, Ashley, I've met you now a couple of times in person, and it's always been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, firstly, because you are so not a stereotypical engineer, whatever that means these days. Um, but also because what you're doing is so like in fashion and so like hot right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Explosive. In yeah. fact, um, in, in kind of the aviation space, but also just generating power. So, yeah. um, Before we launch into sort of like getting to know you much more, um, do you want to explain to us what your research is about?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm doing research on hydrogen combustion specifically. So looking at the actual getting it to explode, but in a very controlled way um, on a computer specifically right now. Um, So I'm just modelling test cases, trying to see how hard or easy it is to simulate hydrogen flames on a computer um, so using cfd computational fluid dynamics so yeah
1: love cfd
0: um,
1: so you're actually basically recreating using algorithms
0: how hydrogen
1: burns is that right
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's actually quite, well, it's very new, especially in aviation, but generally it's a very new concept. We have a lot of history and a lot of knowledge when it comes to burning hydrocarbons, but hydrogen is completely different. So it's not a liquid. Fundamentally, you know, you don't have to worry about um, atomizing it. So making it really fine to the point where it can burn. It's already a gas. Um, so, you know, it, it'll just light itself sometimes, but you can light it in a controlled way when you have it at the right temperatures. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating problem and something that is really exciting to be a part of, especially within the aviation sector.
1: It seems like hydrogen's a bit of an all or nothing situation. I mean, that's my limited understanding of hydrogen where, you know, it can either be massively explosive if you get like hydrogen and, and air mix um, perfectly right, um, you know, or it can just be really inert.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think... One of the things you have to think about is when you're just storing the fuel itself, especially with hydrogen, there's several different ways of doing that. And when you have it either compressed into like a a vessel that keeps it at a really high pressure or you make it really, really cold and it becomes a liquid, it is, you know, you can handle it quite easily. Um, It's just then getting it to the point where you're going to be able to get it in and burn it, that stuff gets a little bit more complicated. But it's an exciting engineering question that, you know, has a lot of people trying to figure it out and trying to, um, I guess, assess how we're going to be able to do it on a bigger scale.
1: Absolutely. People are talking about it so much right now. And I think the conversation has been happening for a while because this idea of moving away from fossil fuels has been a dream of uh many engineers for a long time now um is hydrogen
0: going to be the answer you know i think hydrogen is a fantastic answer um when you think if we focus specifically on aviation you think about where it is that you might want to go you might want to get on a plane and fly straight down to australia now when we're trying to assess how we're going to get hydrogen on a plane, the amount of space you need to store it, because it's quite um, it requires a lot of volume to store the same amount of energy, you can't store that much on a plane and still have passengers. So for hydrogen, we're thinking or the, the sort of general consensus is that it's going to be a sort of middle of the market slash smaller narrow body type um, way that it's going to fit. So really single aisle um, things to say, get you from London into Europe, those sort of types of flights, not necessarily transatlantic because you just don't have the ability to store that much hydrogen to get you that far. So then we look at other things, you know, if we're looking longer distances, looking at sustainable aviation fuel, which is a really another big buzzword right now in aviation, um, because you're able to kind of close that carbon loop and recapture the carbon and then convert it into a fuel. Now, of course, when you're flying, you're still burning carbon, but you're recapturing it and turning that carbon back into fuel and using it over and over again. So that's probably more realistic for longer distances but I think when it comes to you know UK to Paris or UK to Lisbon that sort of thing hydrogen could very well be an answer I didn't realize
1: sustainable aviation fuel or SAF as is known in the industry um reuses carbon
0: like so and that's potentially potentially a little bit misleading I think in the in a perfect world that's the way that they would they would create it. It would be essentially pulling carbon from the environment and then um, and then turning it into like a specific fuel. fuel. But they actually do it with um, with certain, I guess, like things from nature. So they can actually use products, some bio products and convert it into like waste product essentially and turn it into saps. It's not quite my area of... <laughs> of expertise um but i think in a perfect world it would essentially be capturing co2 essentially from an, the atmosphere and finding a way to convert that to soft. uh you probably know way more than anyone that's listening to this
1: and some of my audience may have got stuck on the word inert i'm actually sure thinking
0: yeah
1: <laughs> right now yeah. um so no your insight into this whole world of fueling planes is a fascinating one um it seems like there's a lot of work to do and you know when you hear things that come out of like cop 27 cop 28 it's like there's so much excitement for the idea of using hydrogen because the exhaust that comes out of burning hydrogen is water and that's very exciting because it's nice and clean i mean relatively Yeah. Um, But it's like when you delve into that dream, you realize that it's quite
0: far away. Yeah, but we also have to remember that it's not quite perfect. We're not only creating water when you're, if you're going to be flying plane up in the sky, you're you're actually also creating um, nitrogen based like output. So NOx is what they call it, um, which I think is the word for two different um, nitrogen molecules. And those are the ones that are actually really dangerous to things like the ozone. So we're not just creating water, but then the problem with water is that it generates contrails. So, you know, when you look up in the sky and you see a plane with those white um, paths behind them, that's called the contrail. And in a normal plane, planes that we have now that run on kerosene, what's happening is in the engine, you're generating soot. So it's a very small kind of tiny particle. that's carbon based and water crystallizes on that. And that's what you see in the sky. Now, when you're generating water out of a hydrogen jet engine, let's say, it will just put out that water and it will crystallize. But the question is, is that we don't know how long it's going to stay around for. We don't know if there's going to be lots more of it. And we don't know if it's even going to be something that will um, that will end up being better than the controls that are made with like fossil fuels, because contrails themselves have a, I think it's a radiative force or something like that. So basically it holds, um, it holds heat within the earth. So that in itself is also like also a problem that, you know, we're looking and thinking, well, maybe that's going to be the issue. Maybe it's not going to be CO2, but it's going to be these contrails that are causing this problem and generating more heat on the planet. I can see loads of PhDs like so many projects done absolutely well that that's exactly it it's not just the engineers it's people doing chemistry it's people like you know policy and that sort of thing that we're gonna have to figure out how you can even get a plane like this certified because of course you know people are scared of hydrogen and i mean not i don't mean rightly so but of course it's new and it's something that we have to get a handle on before it can be commercialized. So, yeah, but it's still, it's an exciting thing and and an actual step change in the industry that we don't actually see very often. So it's really cool to be a part of that and it's something that we can live through and watch happen. A literal seismic shift in the way we transport
1: ourselves around. It's quite incredible and
0: just generate power. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the thing that's really cool about hydrogen is that if we do it well, and if we can generate it using renewable resources, so whether it's wind farms or solar panels or whatever you want using electrolysis, it is relatively easy to make. Now, of course, we're nowhere near the global scale that we would need to be um, to be able to power aircraft. But again, all those things with encouragement from government policy and all that, we we should hopefully be able to get that change to be able to gen- like make the fuel in the first place and then use that to power houses. I think there's a really interesting project going on in Leeds that they're looking at what would happen if we wanted hydrogen to power boilers in houses and how you'd be able to do that in kind of an actual city system. So there's really cool stuff that's happening both in the air and on land.
1: You must be so like, like you just must be such an asset to any party, <laughs> any dinner party. I would want to sit next to you because I just like have so many questions and your knowledge just spans so many different areas of our lives, whether it's like, getting around or powering our homes or, you know, actually making hydrogen, like splitting water. And I mean, have so much knowledge about something so deeply fascinating.
0: Yeah. I think, I think the part that helps is that people generally are interested in it and people are curious. And of course, when you have, (laughs) it sounds bad, but when you have like historical horrible events, like the Hindenburg, which is what a lot of people think of when you say the word hydrogen, you know, people, people are a little worried and are curious to know more. But fortunately, that wasn't anything to do with how that um, how that airship was powered. It just happened to be a leak and it was filled with hydrogen, and that's why that happened. But when you're doing, when you're using it in a very controlled way in an engine to power a plane, we shouldn't have to worry as much, hopefully, once we get the whole system figured out.
1: Is there safety, I mean, apart from the obvious ones, like,
0: will there be heightened
1: risks travelling with hydrogen?
0: So I think by the time it gets to the point where you or me could end up on a plane, I think it will have gone through so many different um, tests in so many different phases of study, um, that I don't think it will necessarily be any more dangerous than, um, than flying with kerosene. But the ones that are a bit more closer to home are the discussions that people are having with putting hydrogen in things like, um, like trucks, or I call it a truck, (laughs) but like lorries are being powered by like hydrogen fuel cells and stuff like that. Now, on lorries you still have to store it so you probably store it compressed in in vessels but what happens if somebody hits into that and it cracks that will cause an explosion it's those sort of more um you know there are more car accidents and there are plane incidents that sort of thing so thinking about how we are going to manage it on the ground and then see how we can apply that to to a plane It's definitely going to be the way forward and just learn from, you know, the ways that they're understanding or they're figuring out is the best way to assess risk and that sort of thing. Amazing. I honestly feel
1: like I could talk to you about this subject for hours and really just kind of bust some myths that I've picked up over the years about that. Um, but that would be like a five hour podcast. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try and like, just delve into some other things um, to really get to know you in this hour. Sure, yeah. Why did you choose such a fascinating topic? Like why engineering for you?
0: so it's one of those funny stories that i think you look back and you try to assess what it was that um that got you interested in things like that and my father it's one of those tends to be one of those stories that a lot of people have Uh, but my father actually um his work brought us to airports a lot of the time so he wasn't an engineer himself but he always worked near airports so we ended up close to airports now, saying that, I don't have a big obsession with planes like some people, who, like some people who study aeronautical engineering, end up having. But I was just fascinated with how it is that this thing can get off the ground and actually fly. I thought it was really cool. So when I was looking at A levels and stuff, and realizing that my forte was maths and I really enjoyed that, but wanted something that was applied. And wanted a bit more of a vocation rather than just a topic at university, I guess. Um, So I ended up applying for what was actually a foundation year at Lethbridge University. Um, Did the foundation year first because I didn't have the right background having come from overseas with no GCSEs and that sort of thing. Um, So did the foundation year and ended up moving away from mechanical engineering, which was my initial plan, and towards aeronautical, just because I thought it was cool to be able to have it be a bit more specific and yet so widely applicable as aeronautical engineering is, you know, it's not just about the plane itself, but the systems in it and the aerodynamics in it, and all these separate things. That just because people think plane when they think aeronautical engineering doesn't mean that that's the entire degree because it's not. Um, so yeah, then all of a sudden I ended up doing a PhD, <laughs> which um, yeah, I think oh gosh, if I if I think about what led me here, um, I took a module in third year called gas turbine design, which is a fantastic module that we have here at Lethbra, um, where you get to design as a third year student. So, you know, what is it like maybe 20, if maybe 21, but probably more like 20. Um, And you design a a jet engine from start to finish. So designing every single blade, how many stages there are, designing the combustor, picking bearings and bolts and all this sort of stuff. I just found it fascinating. I thought it was really cool and um, the module is actually run by people, um, academics, sorry, who work in NCAT, so in um, the National Center, and I just thought that it was so fascinating that, like, as a third-year student, I can, you know, attempt to design a jet engine. Would it ever get off the ground? No, but it was a fantastic way of applying everything that we've learned so far, and I thought it was really cool that I didn't have to do the whole plane, because the structure of it so much didn't interest me. I like the fact that the jet engine is the reason why it gets off the ground. Okay, fine, you need wings too, but that's kind of the powerhouse of the whole system. Um, so after that found out about the CDT, so Center for Doctoral Training that we have um, in a joint venture with Cambridge and Oxford um, and thought that that would be a really exciting thing to do and, and an opportunity to work in this lab that's you know so well known for doing doing that sort of work, which is really cool.
1: I can really see the enthusiasm and like the passion you have. Like when you were talking about designing a jet engine from start to finish and you were talking about like the bolts and the the bearings. But it's not like something that really floats the boat of most women.
0: No, yeah, I know. I think it's one of those things that I still sort of sit sometimes at my desk when I'm I'm running simulations or whatever I'm doing. And I do have those sort of pinch me moments because you do wonder how you know, how you got to where you were. And of course, there's incredible support. I've had the most amazing people around me at Lefbra. And um, even even now still within this lab, we're so fortunate to have a really great community of both PhD students, but then academics that are some of the best people. Um, but I think, you know, you, you pick a university when you go through your UCAS and it just worked out really really well for me and I think Loughborough offered me a fantastic balance of academia so the engineering side but then also things like sport which really kind of helped form me I guess as a as a student and as a person I suppose in my early life so yeah
1: yeah I mean like I'm 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 totally conforming to stereotypes Right when I yeah. say that you don't strike me as someone that would get super excited by bearings and bolts. Sure. That's not my opinion. Yeah, I'm just no, it, it, yeah you're right. People tend to assume. Yeah. It's amazing watching how like passionate you are about what you're studying and researching. Um, do you consider yourself unconventional?
0: I mean, I, I guess... You know i I say that in a way that you know we're still work like getting a woman into engineering and really across stem is still very much a work in progress. Um, a lot of the things I do sort of outside of just my PhD is working with programs at the university have, getting students like young women onto campus to sort of learn about a future in STEM, because there, there's obviously work to do in that. Um, I did this residential program last summer where I lived with, I think it was like five um five or six 15 year old girls and we did all these sorts of um, kind of events during the day and learning about you know different types of engineering different types of sciences and that sort of thing and by the end of the week they just looked at me and they were like this was so much fun and like you're so cool what you do is so cool and I was just sat there thinking I guess it is Like, you know, you think when you come to work every day and you just do your job and you go home and whatever, you don't necessarily think about the fact that it is unusual. Um, But with the work that we can do and keep doing to make sure that people see or women specifically see that it is accessible and it is something that you can do and that you don't necessarily need to stand out. You can just do your job and do it well. Um, there's no reason why anybody should should think of themselves as special. But unfortunately, we're still at the point where you definitely are. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we've we gained a lot more women in even this office this year with a couple of new um, female PhD students joining. So yeah, it's exciting. It's definitely changing.
1: I felt that when um, I was at the CDT, that women really just want to get on with doing some great impactful work. Yeah, Um, And uh, it's really awesome to see the perspectives changing because, um, you know, in the past, it was like so much emphasis on like, oh, she's a woman doing this. And wow, so rare. And yeah, you're still in a minority. But I love the fact that the mentality is heading towards yeah, she's a woman, but like, guess what she's doing? It's so cool. Yeah, and
0: like, yeah, I totally I'm immersed. Yeah, I think I agree, and it's the, this sort of shift that's happening. With you know, you don't want to be a female engineer; you just want to be an engineer, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But there's also nothing wrong with still admiring the fact that we're doing what we're doing, and there's not very many women doing it. And when you sometimes sit in meetings, you might be the only woman, but. So long as you you know back yourself and back the work that you're doing, you know, there's there's definitely less like people notice it less anyway. Um mm. but yeah.
1: Can we delve into that because I think it's a major part of the process of change. Sure. Which is uh, um in order to because there's there's definitely a correlation between seeing women doing badass things in engineering and girls and kind of younger generations wanting to follow in the footsteps of these women Absolutely. um so there's definitely that correlation going on um but once you are following in those footsteps of these incredible women like yourself mm-hmm. um How do you hold your own, assuming that you are like kind of in a minority as
0: a woman in engineering? I think a lot of it is just, um, for me, anyway, staying true to yourself or true to myself specifically. I mean, I have never been one of those per- like people or women even to not wear a bright color or not wear a dress because I felt like it would be something that people would notice, let's say, or, or anything like that. I think clothing is something that I've actually had a lot of conversations with, um, with different women ahead of conferences or ahead of different things saying people going, oh, no, I'm just going to wear, I think I'll probably just wear like a black suit or whatever. And I'm stood there going, oh, I'm going to wear a dress. I'm going to wear a brightly colored dress because that's I what I like wearing and why can't I be stood up at the front you know presenting in a bright pink dress like the, there's nothing wrong with that and that's true to myself obviously some people might not like doing that some people might rather be in a pair of trousers um but for me I like trying to retain as much of my personality as possible. And I think when people see you being true to yourself and being genuine and and not hiding behind the fact that you think people might not want to listen to what you're saying because of the fact that you're a woman or whatever, that helps. And I think just people acknowledging the fact that it's like, okay, well, I I can be my confident self. You know, if you tell someone to do something and they call you bossy, it's like, okay, I mean you know, sometimes you get things like that, but there's no harm in just trying your, you know, to represent yourself the best way that you know how. Um, And yeah, just being being your confident self. And I think that's often what people pick up on. Because if you want to be the shy, timid person who stands in the corner of a room, you know, it's the same thing for men. You have men who don't want to Talk to people or whatever, but um, you know, you just have to be willing to put yourself out there, and whether it's network or you know, talk to as many different people as you can as many different things. Um, I think it always helps you be able to project yourself and your work better when you like talking about it, or you you feel comfortable because you're wearing what you like to wear, or you know, whatever it is.
1: I literally. I'm tingling at the boldness and empowered mentality that that requires. Yeah. It's just so strong. And so, you know, when you were talking, like I was picturing someone kind of trying not to stand out in the corner, like someone a bit shy and not wanting to like be that bold, confident woman And just how much that approach actually gives off the message that maybe they don't believe in what they're saying.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's it's so true. And even that, it's just showing that, you know, being, especially when we get to this point where you're doing a PhD and you're becoming the person who knows the most about what it is that you're talking about. It's one of those things that if whatever you can do to make yourself feel like, you're putting your best foot forward I think is always helpful because it's easy to stand in the corner and not say anything and especially as um as a woman if you feel like you're not being heard or feel like you're not being listened to but I think the thing that you need to do is never stop trying like it can be hard and I've absolutely been in that place with some people sometimes and you just think, oh god, they're just never going to listen to me, but you just keep trying, you keep trying, eventually they'll have to listen because you probably had the same idea or a better idea you know, 10 days ago or 20 minutes ago or whatever it was um, so I think just trying as hard as you can to be as like unapologetically yourself, even that if that makes other people uncomfortable because I have to say sometimes I think like some I mean, I've had men kind of look at me like like, well I'm like yeah and because I'm also like over six foot tall and I'll still wear heels to to like if I'm doing a presentation because it makes me feel more confident it makes me feel better so why do I have to make other people feel better you know by not wearing heels because I don't they feel short or whatever it is so yeah I don't know it's so powerful I just
1: feel like this is such a mic drop moment, and I kind of want to just take that away and just like nurture that thought, you know? Because I love this idea that you were six feet tall, and like you still put on a pair of high heels. Oh yeah, give me
0: a four inch pair of like black boots any day, and like I'll wear them. But I think, I think that's the thing is that you know who why it's it's dressing for yourself rather than for other people and I think in a workplace it can be hard like on a day-to-day basis I'm not walking around with like four inch heels on or whatever um but it's just things like that like why I mean why do I need to dress down or dress in a way that feels kind of sad to me or whatever just to make other people what feel more comfortable or for the men to not look at like to look at me differently or it's just sort of, it's one of those things that you just look and you go, okay, well, I mean, I feel more confident when I'm dressed like this. It's kind of like with anything. I mean, I used to dress up, well, not dress up, but I used to get myself in something that I felt confident in just to sit an exam because I was like, you know what, if I'm dressed and I'm not in my like sweatpants that I could have slept in, I'll have a different mindset. And I think it's really it sounds silly, but it's just one of those things that you can do for yourself that just puts yourself at ease or gives yourself that kind of weird placebo effect added confidence that I think is really important.
1: Oh my God, I just love that so much um and it really makes me think that I think I'm guilty of actually getting dressed for others still to this day,
0: yeah. i mean we all do it yeah
1: i do so many different things and i'm like what the audience want to see me in you know and it's like you know well it's older more corporate um so i better wear a suit and i never wear suits. like i hate suits yeah like don't dress for others dress for yourself i love that so much it's so powerful
0: Mm, absolutely yeah no i think um, i've got a nice collection of you know, appropriate length dresses. You know, we're not talking about anything crazy, um, but just stuff that I I like and that makes me feel confident, especially when I'm standing up in front of a big group of people and presenting.
1: It is so. It's so much about like being the best version of yourself. Sure. You know that that power dress that goes to the knee. You know, so we're not talking about like trying to yeah. Get, no we're talking about how do you feel when you're wearing that outfit? Because yeah. that's how, what you want to radiate. Absolutely, and that's empowered. And I think this is, oh, this is where like, this is where we can recalibrate as women. Absolutely. Or any industry, but we're in STEM. So like, this is where women in STEM can recalibrate because it's so much about wanting to just give our best yeah and you know you talk about um for me what really resonates so strongly is this idea of like apologizing and this idea of like the way you're received affects the way you feel about yourself like it sounds like for you it is water off a duck's back but that kind of thinking dominated such a major part of my life like it would be really confident and then I'd get like a wall of blank faces or like how dare she talk with so much confidence and I would literally shrink yeah and it's like hearing the way you approach that situation it's like why did I let myself shrink like Mm. we have to create this um outer layer that kind of shields us from other people's judgment
0: absolutely yeah and I mean don't get me wrong I think I've had people probably look at me a bit funny when I'm in some brightly colored dress or whatever and you know you just look and you go okay well you know they're just mad because they couldn't look as nice in a dress as I could like
1: that's (laughs) also what's so amazing about that is you might be in this like bright pink dress and heels then you start talking and you're this expert on a subject that is like so important yeah. to our future.
0: But I think I think that's what it comes down to is you're talking about stereotypes. It's like, why can't you be a girly girl who likes to wear makeup and put heels on and do their hair or whatever and be an amazing engineer like there's nothing stopping you and I think it's just changing the way that other people perceive women in the workspace because for so long we've been you know dressed in dark colors or whatever trying to hide like you say and saying well no actually one of the best things about women is often our character and and the way that we can speak to people and the way that we can relate to people so now using that that ability that we have just as women, not even as, as engineers to make ourselves more approachable and easier to work with. And, you know, women don't have the same work thought processes as men do. And and that's what makes really great teams is having that diversity in thought. Um, so I think that's, you know, using, using those skills that we have, even just soft skills or whatever you want to call them, um, to make yourself either stand out, you know, and, and and not in a bad way, just for, you know, being someone who's a good conversationalist or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately it boils down to substance yeah. um, because there are a variety of different ways you can package yourself. Sure. But I think it's so crucial to have the substance to back it up, the stuff that comes from within. Yeah. Absolutely. The managing, because I've had quite a few different women on this podcast over the years. And um, I don't know. It's like you, the way you've described the way we present ourselves from the outside, um, I really align with. Um, but there have been. Other women who are well within their right to do whatever they want, but it's like it's just an interesting topic that I think because you know you raised the question like um women are allowed to do whatever they want, right? right? Yes, they are. Um, but the judgment that's created. I don't know. It, it's not clear to me. Let me give an example. Like recently the Grammys um, yeah. were it, this Grammy event that was on recently um, was talking about like gender and sort of like men and women and transgender. And and, and like one of the key messages that came out of it was um, what are we talking about here? Because we're wanting to like not talk about gender. Yeah. And then when it comes to like male, female categories, we want to get rid of that. But then some categories had mostly males and there were not enough. And it's like, are we talking about it or not? Yeah. Yeah. And and I just, basically, I've got to the point where I just wish that we could get to a place where, we're talking about in our case the engineering and we're not talking about gender
0: yeah I think that's that kind of circles back to what I was saying a little while ago about just being an engineer not a female engineer because I think at the end of the day you can carry yourself and dress yourself however you want to but if people if if people aren't seeing you as just what you are, what you should be, an engineer, whatever sort of engineer or scientist that might be, you know, that that still means that we absolutely have a place that we need to, to go. Because at the end of the day, if you sat at a table and, you know, couldn't hold your own with a group of people, whether they were all women or all men or a combination, you know, we, we hope, we always hope that you're going to be able to see just the the person and the skill that they have sat in front of you but of course we're not there yet um but i'm i have confidence that with time uh we're going to get more and more women into into engineering and into stem subjects as people sort of realize that there isn't a gap or there shouldn't be a gap necessarily
1: yeah i mean talking to you makes me really hopeful about the future of engineering because. Um, you know, I finished my doctorate 20 years ago, would you believe? No, um, it can't be true. it's like honestly, I I just can't believe it. Um, but yeah, like it's been two decades since I was kind of where you are. And um it's a long time to have witnessed change. And two decades ago. Um, engineering was an industry that was very very male dominated and very homogenous and as a result I felt extremely uncomfortable um, with being so massively underrepresented as a woman and a woman of color in engineering Mm -hmm. Um, and what I see now is a lot of change and so you know you represent someone who just is really redefining what it is to be an engineer and you embody someone that I wish I had been like 20 years ago because you are like so confidently doing what you're doing um, where I'm like I want to just talk to you for like hours and hours and just Pick your brains and like learn what you know and all of that. Like you just make your research sound so exciting and so necessary for all of us.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and you're doing it in like an authentically passionate way. Um and you know, when I think about what it was like in engineering 20 years ago, I'm like, I'm gonna to listen to her like uh, you're 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 redefining what it is to be an engineer like engineering to me has always been a cutting edge exciting creative ingenious like dynamic kind of profession and you are that you are that and it's like why are we even talking about gender like Let's just go to where the exciting engineering is happening.
0: Yeah, I think I mean I think that's the thing is that we are very much in this space or this time where things are changing. And especially in aviation, the last time that happened was, you know, decades and decades ago when we were just kind of building the first jet engine. And now we're looking at redesigns and you get blank sheets of paper. And it's the sort of thing that you don't get often in engineering because we're dealing with a new problem and something that's really exciting. And whether or not it works or not, these sort of things that y- y- you have to do is the world is developing and we're trying to figure out how we can, keep everyone connected and keep medicine flying to different people and that sort of thing in a way that's not going to harm the planet as much. Um, So it's, yeah, I mean, what what it boils down to is the fact that now we're fortunate enough that what we're doing is incredible and there's so much um, so much going on, whether that's in the world of medicine and vaccines and that sort of stuff, or just figuring out how we can decarbonize aviation. Um, there's so many aspects to STEM now that are making it exciting. And I think also a lot of the way that the news is changing and informing people of different things, I hope inspires younger people women to look and go oh yeah well that's something that I could be a part of or you know the fact that we want to decarbonize aviation or you know make less carbon emissions and that sort of thing maybe I want to be a part of that and you see it on that bigger scale but it's like you say as well it's it's only It's only as good as when you have representation or people to look at. So, Rolls Royce now has Grazia Vittadini, who's taken over as um, CTO, who's an incredible role model. I mean, I look at her and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I mean, I wonder if I could do that. Maybe not, but maybe, like, who knows? Um, And it's that sort of thing that now these women are working their way up to a point where they're getting acknowledgement and and are being seen and are being seen by people who are younger can then look and go, okay, well, now I can see where I can go. And I think that's so important. And it's like you say, when, you know, if you look back however many years, there wasn't that for for people to look at. And now we're finally getting to the point where we're seeing more women. So yeah, it's it's exciting, for sure. But something... I've got a couple of more questions for you. Sure. Um one
1: is when I listen to you and I hear your path into engineering. Um some of my audience might be saying, well, I'm not as smart as her, like I'm not as great in maths probably as she was, physics, coding, like all those kind of really techy um subjects that are required for engineering can people that are not good at those subjects get into engineering yes
0: absolutely I mean my strongest subject was maths I mean even then it was sort of hit and miss with me (laughs) like sometimes at a level I'd never coded before I got to university Um, I had only just started physics because as someone who moved from overseas I'd never done physics before so I did Year 12 and 13 was my A-level physics was my first experience with physics. So I just sort of hit the ground running and, and went. Um, and there's, there's nothing stopping in with the support that you get at a lot of universities now. Um, there's no reason why if you're really keen, and you have that interest, that's what's most important. And if, even if we look higher up, if we look to PhDs, I mean, I got a two-one in my degree at university, you know, I had a lot of bumps along the way. And um, so I was really happy with that. But you just need a two-one and a whole lot of passion to do a PhD. They don't look, when you interview for PhDs and things like that, they aren't necessarily just looking at your transcript and going, oh, well, what was that like weird mark that they got in some obscure module? It's more so them asking you questions going, why do you want to do this? And, you know, it's another three years of your life. You're committing yourself to that. Do Like, what do you think you want to do in the future? It's those sort of questions. And if they see that you are keen and that you're interested, there's nothing stopping people from even going on further and doing phds but yeah no you can th- there's a lot of stuff and a lot of ways to learn like youtube is a fantastic resource for maths help and coding help and everything that there's there's yes yeah. <laughs> well exactly i mean there's nothing stopping people anymore i don't think um there's so many resources and so many new ways to learn that i think if you want to be an engineer, just do it. I think the application or being able to put maths and physics to life really, because that's what you're doing is really cool. Yeah, and
1: loads of other ways of getting into engineering as well. Oh, absolutely. Apprenticeships, yeah. Yeah. Um, So a question which um, I think affects all women um, is how you juggle uh, a technical career or a career in STEM, and the other dimension of being a woman, uh, which is the potential to become a mum, that kind of thing, how do you see that panning out in your
0: future? So, I don't know. That's one of those, that's one of those questions that, like, honestly, scares me a little i mean i am 27 so um because i had a year out from university and my foundation year and that so i'm a little bit older than some other people are in the second year of your phd but we're fortunate in this day and age to be able to stay in education as long as you want and do whatever you want with your life so i'm i'm very happy and content where i am but yeah looking at looking at future and stuff like that and thinking more long term is hard because You can think that, you know, well, you you can hope and I think in this country it's illegal that like when you go and look for jobs, they're not going to be thinking about whether or not you're going to be off for maternity leave or if they're going to have to find a replacement or all these sort of things or how it'll affect your progression and stuff like that as well. Um, Because you can't help the fact that you will have been out of your job for a year. So obviously that's going to change kind of the fabric of, of your career. Um, but yeah, I mean, I am very much one of those people that's sort of playing it by ear. I don't definitely want children just like I don't absolutely not want children. Um, but yeah, I think it's I have, I definitely have some people that I've seen do it like there's an academic in the main department who has children and she's a professor now. So it's possible these things are these things are possible and you look at people who are able to juggle it perfectly, and they have their partner at home that is maybe helpful or has a less demanding job that sort of thing. but yeah, for now I just want to finish my PhD. That's my baby. <laughs> That's my <laughs> current baby. So we're not. I know how that
1: feels. Like yeah, you know, it's really interesting hearing your response to that question because um, there is absolutely no doubt that you are going to be really, really busy for your the rest of your career because you're in such an important area of engineering. I mean, there's just so much to do, so much to figure out. And uh, I think it's going to take a while. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, you're hot stuff when it comes to, like, the, the professional front. But it's really interesting to hear your response because, you know, uh, I just don't think, as a society, we have really established um, a... A kind of a roadmap for yeah. women um so there's so much emphasis on getting women to do um things professionally that are quite male-dominated right now but it's like yeah but are you offering support for sure. things that women have?
0: So, i mean fortunately i think there there are a lot of companies that are still adopting a like a work from home slash hybrid style working where you do have that option, which I know a lot of people use as a way of kind of getting around childcare and stuff like that. But it's like you say, if it's not built into how we function as whether it's a country or as a general society, I mean, some countries have much longer maternal leave and much longer paternal leave and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, it's a very different, it's a very different thing. And sometimes I do look at people and go, my gosh, I wonder if she has children, or I wonder if she's married or has a partner or whatever, how that has worked or that sort of thing, because don't get me wrong, it is something I think about. And I think you have to, you sort of have to have in the back of your head going, okay, well, you know, they always talk about a clock with these sort of things. And you just sort of think like, okay, well, if I want to have a family, or if I want to be thinking about those sort of things, you have to sort of plan it into your future. Um, But yeah, for now, anyway, I'm I'm firmly focused on my PhD baby instead.
1: Yeah, well, it has been so inspiring to just be uh, kind of infected with your energy, like your really positive energy and inspiring kind of outlook on life. Um, I'm so excited for you because I just think you're absolutely unique and special thank you Um, and i just you know i i'm i'm excited for your future because it looked really bright um and i i want to stay in touch with you because i want to see you grow and develop and evolve as a woman in engineering and like a total badass in the profession um and i think you're really showing us the way um So it's like a case of watch this space and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your enthusiasm. Oh, no, absolutely.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening and please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews then the more interest from those trusty algorithms which could help to increase the reach of this show. And you can watch the video recording of this conversation on YouTube for my new series called Esteemed Women. It's all about self discovery and self evolution on innovation so as always be kind and loving to yourselves and I wish you all a great week.